You're listening to a message from Pastor Jack Holt at the River. Tonight I've entitled the message, Bouncing Back from Losses. And I want to start with this because I think it's really significant, especially in the day that we live in, that if you believe in your losses, all it does is create more and more losses in your life. And Satan will continue to steal from you until you eventually end up with absolutely nothing. You'll feel empty spiritually, and he'll shipwreck your faith. And so tonight, what I want to do is show you how to bounce back from losses, because sometimes we experience a loss, maybe in a relationship, loss financially, a loss maybe with a loved one. And if we're not careful, we begin to have faith in those losses that lead to more and more and more losses in our life. Amen? And you can't thrive with God with that type of faith. You just can't thrive. Here's what I learned about God, and it's so true. God is, uh, the gospel and God is kind of like a riptide. If you've ever been in a riptide, the farther out you go, the greater drag it has, and it can pull you out. The gospel is like that. When you sell out, the deeper you go, the stronger the drive. The more God will drag you into some good things. Amen? So we want to do that tonight. Maybe you're all tired and whooped out, whatever, from the week's work, but I'm going to fire you up. Is that okay? Is that okay if you get fired up tonight? All right. Praise God. So I want you to look, if you would, over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17. I want to uh, relate to a story here in the Gospels that I believe will bless you. Now, I want you to keep in mind here that this is probably the greatest loss that the apostles and the disciples ever experienced in Jesus' ministry. As far as I know, this was the only time in Jesus' ministry when his own disciples experienced loss outside of the resurrection when they doubted him and all that stuff. This is the, one of the few times that we see in Scripture, which perhaps is the only time, and what's crazy about this is Jesus has been up on the Mount of Transfiguration and the glory of God has been displayed. And man, he's been on vacation with Peter, James, and John. And the glory cloud has fallen. And they come down off that and there's the, there's the disciples. Failed at casting out a devil. And it kind of ruined Jesus' day. He got quite an attitude about it. Because it wrecked his reputation because of unbelief. And look what it says here. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, circle that, for surely I say unto you that if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say unto this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind, say this kind, does not go out except by prayer and fasting. There's a lot in this, but what I want to start with is simply this. When Jesus' disciples experienced this failure... Because Jesus was not there. They wanted to know what's going on. They had never, as far as we know, had anyone that they prayed for or cast a devil out of 
that the devil didn't automatically come out of. But this was a unique, uh, unique mountain or problem. Uh, it's very unusual to find a child that is possessed by a demon. Usually when that happens, it's because there's been perversion in the family and maybe the fathers molested him and so forth and they got into witchcraft or whatever. So it's very unusual. So they were dealing with something that wasn't the typical problem that you would face that day. But I like how Jesus deals with it. They come to him and said, Lord, how, how come we couldn't do this? Now, number one, obviously they believe in their loss. They believe they couldn't do it. They still could, but the loss was so great it created a belief that they couldn't. And I like what Jesus tells him. He says, the reason why you couldn't is the unbelief in your life. And I like that because it, it's, it, he didn't say the reason why you couldn't is because it wasn't God's will. Think about that. We always use that when things don't work. It must be God's will. Jesus didn't use that. He said, no, the problem is unbelief. In fact, in Scripture, the only time I really find that Jesus said that you couldn't have something because of God's will is when you remember the disciples came to him and they said, Lord, we want to sit on your right hand. We want to be in this position of authority. And Jesus said, are you willing to pay the price or, you know, the cup? you know, the pain of it. And they said, yeah, we are. And he said, well, you're going to, but I can't give that spot to you because the Father's the one that does it. Outside of that, he never used that card. And said, well, you couldn't do it because it wasn't the will of God. How many of us the will of God to cast out every dimmion? The only time it won't work is if there's unbelief in our lives and if the person that has the demon doesn't want to lose the demon, can't cast it out. Outside of that, you should always be able to cast out the devil. And so he says this to him, and this is very significant. He says, okay, this is the problem, guys. You couldn't do it because of unbelief. But if you have faith as a mustard seed, now make a note of that mustard seed. It's used five times in the four Gospels, which is really a lot of times to talk about faith in connection with a mustard seed. But I want you to remember this about a mustard seed. A mustard seed is different than ordinary seeds. We know it grows bigger than the plants planted in the ground, bigger than corn, all that stuff. But that's not what's unique about a mustard seed. A mustard seed will grow in the sand. It'll grow in a swamp. It'll grow, it'll grow anywhere. In other words, it doesn't matter what the soil is like, it will grow. And he's saying you've got to have the kind of faith that will grow in any situation or a difficult situation, it will grow. You've got to have that kind of faith to cast out this kind of demon. How many have ever been in a situation where your faith doesn't seem to grow? The problem is so unique, it's so horrible that no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to muster up enough faith in that situation. You need mustard seed faith. Mustard seed faith will grow in a divorce. 
It'll grow if you got stage four cancer. It'll grow if the bank is foreclosing on your house. It will grow in any discouraged position in your life if you operate. But he says this kind comes out but by prayer and fasting. Why? Because when you fast, what do you do? You put your emotions under the control of your faith. See, fasting is about telling your emotions, I'm going to decide what we do, not you. And what emotions do is they interrupt our faith. I don't feel like God heard me. I don't feel like I'm healed. I don't feel like I'm going to get a breakthrough. I don't feel like it because that, this kind of faith he's talking about controls the way you feel. Hallelujah. You ever meet a feely-meely person? I don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like forgiving you. I'm hurt. That, and I'm not mocking anybody here. I'm just being funny. That kind of person is not going to be able to overcome the mountains in his life because he's allowing his feelings to dictate what he believes for. He's allowing his emotions to control him. And I love emotions. I love feeling good in the Lord and having joy, and we all need that. But you got to control it by your faith. You can't allow your feelings to control you or weaken your faith and cripple you in what you do in your life. Now, let me give you an example of this, and I'll show you a mustard seed faith outside of the New Testament. I'll show it in the Old Testament. Especially in the day that we live in. How many know that we live in a woke culture? And many of our kids are going to a school system that is just completely out of their minds. The stuff they're trying to brainwash our kids in. And I've talked to many parents about this. And they said, well, I just won't put my kids in school. That's great if you have a husband or a wife that makes enough money that the other one doesn't have to work. But I'm dealing with a lot of people. Both people have to work. So you have this school system. We want to protect our kids, right? We don't want them in a situation confusing them about sexuality and things like that. But I want, to re- I want you to rest assured that if you can't take them out, you can't afford to do it on your own, and you both have to work and they have to go to school, don't panic. Because the Bible tells us that God will still help us and we won't get brainwashed. Think about it for a minute. There was four young men, Daniel, Meshach, Abednego, and so forth. They were taken captive from the Jews, taken from their homeland, taken from their Christian homes, taken from their Christian, I'm just paraphrasing here, from, from, their, from their church and brought to a strange land and they were brainwashed or they tried to brainwash them and their faith grew stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. It was so strong, they threw Daniel in the zoo with tigers, and the tigers became putty cats. 
And the three young men, the friends of Daniel, they're thrown in the fiery furnace. And they did just fine. I mean, their faith was so great. I, I like how they said, spoke to the king, they said. They said, God will deliver us. They were in faith. That's mustard seed faith. And then to make matters even more shocking to him, he says, well, even if God didn't, it don't make any difference. We still won't do what you want us to do. Won't bow down. They threw him in the fiery furnace. And in each case, whether Daniel or these young men, they are promoted into, into a high position in a Babylonian culture that was anti-God, anti-faith. Talk about yoke culture. Amen. So don't get discouraged. Say amen. God's on the throne. You put the word in your children, and they can go through all that and come out just smiley as ever. Praise God. Yeah, Joyce and I, it really tears our hearts up, and I'd like to go in there and punch out some people. I can't do it. I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to hit anybody anymore. But it makes you so mad. But on the other hand, I know that God will not abandon our children. And I know if we put the word in them, whatever they're exposed to, they're going to be just fine. And God's going to promote them in the midst of that situation. Are you excited, everybody? Yeah. Hallelujah. So this mustard seed faith is able to put the kibosh on how you feel in an intense situation so that your emotions don't interfere with your faith and you still go ahead and you do what God wants you to do. Now, now listen to what he says to him. He says... Your unbelief is the reason. He didn't say someone else's unbelief. He said, you, you guys, you're going to take responsibility. It's your faith that failed. It's not someone else. It's your faith. Now, let me, let me show this to you in a practical way. Look at this verse up here. Next verse. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one should bear his own load. What he's saying is, you need to take responsibility on your part. Quit worrying about everybody else. Now, let me give you an example of this that I see in marriages all the time. You're sitting down counseling with people, and uh, it's usually they want the pastor to be the referee. Pastor, tell my wife to submit to me. And they're real quick about bringing out the Bible. Yeah, praise God, tell my wife to submit to me. And you have this in counseling. The problem is you're approaching the problem incorrectly. I said incorrectly. You're not doing it right. Number one, that verse you're talking about is in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. And there's only one verse. And the verse isn't written to you. It's written to the women. The wives, I've got five verses in that chapter. Women got one. I don't got time to mess with the one verse. I got to deal with my five. I got to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I, I got to love her, and, 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 and I got to love her like I love my own body. Oh, glory to God. Praise God. <laughs> I don't got time 
to work on what she needs to work on. But that's what we do. Mustard seed faith has to take responsibility in its life. It is you. You got to be concerned. Don't worry about the other person. It's you. You're the one that's doubting. You're the one that's making the bad decisions. You're the one that's moved by your emotions. You're the one. You, you, you've got to fight in faith for that. And it's true not just with marriage. It's true with raising children. You don't go to the verse and, and say, all right, honey, uh, kids, I want you to read that. Obey your parents, and with long life, God will give you, you know, in, in Ephesians. Now, that's for the kids. That's not for you. Your verse is train them up in the way that they should go. In other words, put on your training clothes. We're going to train you to take out the garbage. We're going to train you to... Be respectful. We're going to train you to forgive when you got cut from the team and you didn't want to get cut from the tree. We're going to train you in that. You see what I'm getting at here? We have to personally take our responsibility to have this mustard seed kind of faith. And whatever mess we're in, whether you were a cause of it or someone else's cause of it, you're not going to get out of it until you decide personally, I'm going to get the wisdom and the knowledge that I need in, in the Word, and I'm going to apply that even though it may seem hard, even though I may not feel like it, I'm going to do it. You remember I mentioned this verse on Sunday that when you abide in His Word, it says that you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free but it's experience truth something that you experience just like you can't know how to snowboard until you snowboard remember that you you got to actually get on the mountain you got to actually get in the place in your family in your marriage in your career where you're experiencing the word of God, you're being tested by fire and you stand in faith, praise God. And you, 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 instead of saying something, whatever, you speak the word. Instead of thinking a bad thought, I wish he'd blow off the freeway. <laughs> now, I know I'm preaching to myself as well because I'm, sometimes I get quickly angry. Then I subside pretty quick. But what I want you to see is that you have to experience it. You got to experience it. You got to experience rejection. You got to experience a negative mood if you want to have this kind of faith that overcomes. Something I used to say years ago is whether we sink, uh, whether we sink, or drowned, we're moving forward. And it, it's something that a lot of Christians in American culture do not have. They fizzle out. They give up in marriages too fast. Now, I say that because sometimes you have no option, but they give up too quick. Did you know that God called every one of you to win, and he won't be happy until you do? He did. Think about that verse. It says... Occupy till I return. So it says. Some of the modern translations say this. They say, they do business until I return. Well, if you go out of business, you can't do business. Some people are 
going out of business in their marriage, going out of business in their, in, their, in their calling. They're going out of business in their walk with God. And I want you to know that it's not God's will. God said that he wants you to stay in business spiritually and win and succeed and your family and everything you have until he returns. You don't want to pull back. You want to fire up that thing and say, baby, we're going to go for it. We're going to reach that goal. We're going to reach that mission. We're not going to draw back in any way, shape, or form. My kids are going to know God. My kids are going to go to the college they want to go to my kids are going to pursue their dreams and visions and you just won't give up praise God because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world Amen. and so you got to have that kind of mentality you ever met, met, met somebody that had given up and they had more faith in their loss than they have in what God can do after a loss and to recover it they're really quite miserable people. And as soon as you get in that place, Satan starts stealing more from you. It may be one week at a time, one month at a time, one year at a time. He'll keep stealing and stealing until you'll become, you'll become part of the frozen chosen. The unhappy believer. Bitter and critical and all you have to do is find. All you see is what's wrong with the church. What's wrong in the world? I see what's right. And what's right is God is starting something in his kingdom that no devil can stop, no politician can stop, no woke movement can stop, no, come on, no Supreme Court can stop. It's that powerful. Now, I want you to look at something with me real quickly. See, Ecclesiastics, or excuse me, Ezekiel 36, please. Now, I want you to see the context of this. Because when I talk about taking responsibility, some of the verses that I mention sometimes are in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, people were completely responsible for how their faith worked. In the New Testament, God is a co-worker with us. And God has given us impulses. God has given us direction. God is the source behind the faith for God who is at work in you, both the willing to do his good pleasure. Amen. You remember that? But look what it says here. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. Now, is that the New Testament? It's not the old, is it? It's a new one. After Jesus went to the cross. Look at the next verse. And I will put my spirit within you. That in the Old Testament wasn't like that. And cause you to walk in my, say it with me, cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Think about the statement that he just said. He said, with this new covenant, I'm going to put my spirit within you and I'm going to cause you to do my word. So it's not independent of God. The impulse of God is inside of us, moving us for, towards forgiveness, moving us towards the vision and dream that God gave us. He's moved, Paul said, it's no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. He's moving us. That is so powerful. Did you know in the New Testament, there is, they never use the term backsliding in the New Testament? It's only in the Old Testament. It's never in the New Testament. You know why? Because God said he was going to cure it. You know how he cured it? 
He cured it by the new birth. The new birth changes a person so much so on the inside, even though they can have carnal whatever, they continue, their heart wants to go the right direction. So they're not in that downward spiral like people in the Old Testament that was just them in charge. God's inside of them. And, and I, you know, when you, if you ever de- deal with a Christian that's backsliding, I'll tell you exactly why they're backsliding. They're backsliding because they've stopped believing in what Christ has given them. They, they believe that they're sinners instead of saints. They believe they're below instead of on top. They believe they're without authority when they have all authority. They are, they, because you become who you believe you are. And the reality is, as he is, so are we in this world. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, I was, I was raised a Catholic. And Catholics, they have all these little statues of, of all these saints. And I'll never forget the day that I told my mom. I said, you know, mom, you're a saint. I'm a saint. She said, no, you're not. I raised you. I know what you are. You're not a saint. I said, Mom, you're, we're all a saint. She said, no, saints have done something very special. I said, no, 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 no. We're all saints. And I took her through the New Testament and started reading the epistles. And it addressed, and it started out addressing the saints. And I mean, addressing the saints in Corinth. Addressing the saints. I mean, I'm thinking, you got to be kidding. These people aren't saints. But they are in Christ. And the day that you start to believe what you are, you'll start acting like that person in your life. The devil wants you to believe that you are a sinner. You used to be a sinner. You've been saved by grace. You've God's imparted his righteousness in you. You've been, oh, glory to God. That's who you are. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. So the best way to stop backsliding is to examine the way you believe. I believe I'm a nobody. I believe I'm not that good. You're not a nobody. You're a somebody because you're in Christ. I'm, I'm stupid. No, you have the mind Christ. You're believing the wrong things. Believe the right things and your faith will soar. And what's really cool is because even when you're stupid, when you believe who you are, you can go boldly before the throne of grace. God, I'm kind of dumb here, but I'm still your son. The door is still wide open. I'm running in. I need some grace. I need some mercy. And God will give it to you. But all sinners are outside. They don't get to go in. You're a saint. Isn't that that weird to say? Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a saint. Yeah, you really believe it, I can tell. You're excited. Come on. Say it with me. I'm a saint. Now, if you don't believe that, just go through your Bible. Like I said, go through uh, the epistles and read the first part, and you'll see that he always dresses the believers as saints. Amen? I rest my case. Scripture after Scripture says that in the epistles. Now, look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. And I'm going to show you something, and this has to do, again, with how you examine yourself, how you see yourself. Look what it says. Therefore, whoever eats this 
bread or drinks this cup, talking about communion of the Lord, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let, uh, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now watch this next part. For this reason, say for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. That doesn't mean everybody. It doesn't mean everybody. Come on. I don't want you judging people. Doesn't mean everybody. Remember when Jesus... Disciples asked him about a man that was born blind. Who sinned, this man or his parents? And what did Jesus say? Neither. In other words, he wasn't in the condition he was in because of his own personal sin, or he wasn't in the condition that he was because of someone, his parents' sin. It's a mystery. Don't ask me to explain it. But Jesus said there are cases that it isn't because of a person's personal sin. So go back on the verse here. For this reason many are, go back please, 30, thank you. For this reason many are weak, sick among you, and many sleep. That means they die prematurely. Keep going. For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, I want you to stop here and think for a minute what communion is. Here's what they were doing. They were coming and participating in something spiritual. But to them, it was just a meal. We're just going to eat. So obviously, when they broke bread together, they had everything else. It was a meal on top of it. And so they were looking at it as just, we're coming together to eat. And they weren't remembering the purpose of communion. If you read the verses up above, it says, do this in remembrance of me is what Jesus said. In other words, I want you to do this to remember what I'm dying for and remember the blessings that are coming because of it. I want you to remember that. David said it this way, bless the Lord, all my soul and all that's within me. And forget not all his benefits. When you do communion... The benefits, need are, we're to remind ourselves that our sins are forgiven, remind ourselves we're going to get a resurrected body, remind ourselves that he was wounded for our transgression and the chastisement of peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. We need to remind ourselves he was made poor in order that we might be made rich. We need to remind ourselves of that when we partake of communion. And because they weren't reminding themselves of that, they were doing these spiritual things but not seeing the result of it, of better health, of lengthening their life. Amen. The Bible promises is long life. Don't exactly, I don't exactly know how long that is, but uh, for one, it may be 53. To another, it may be 100. But the reality is God does promise that. And so we need to, as an individual, need to remember what the cross and the resurrection stands for. It represents freedom from all that stuff that Jesus died for us. And so he says, because you're not judging yourself, you're not examining, you're not discerning the Lord's body, many of you are weak and you don't need to be weak. 
You are sick and you don't need to be sick. And some of them have even died prematurely because you're not believing and discerning the Lord's body when you partake of it. Now, let me say something from this point that I want you to remember, and that is this. When you accepted Christ, God the Father had already judged Jesus in his body for all your sins. So God doesn't judge you for your sin. He did it in the body of Jesus. That's what John meant in 1 John 4. And he said that we have this boldness in the day of judgment because perfect love, he's talking about the love of the Father, perfect love cast out fear for fear has to do with punishment. In other words, Jesus has removed that threat of punishment in our lives, that threat of condemnation. He's removed it in our lives. So, if God's not judging us from the sin, then what's he judging us for? Good question, isn't it? He's judging us for our faith. Be it done unto you according to your faith. If you doubt, you go without. Whatever degree that you believe for, God will move in your life. Believe for a lot and he'll move a lot. So we get judged by our faith. Sin's already been dealt with. But your faith can give you access to a, the kingdom or your faith can give you access to healing. Your faith can give you access to opportunities. Your faith can give you access to, and understand this is all within God's timing and and. Sometimes there's a season where things are just the way they are. But the availability of it is always available to the person who believes in faith. I've seen people that don't believe in a lot, but some things that they do. I believe this. I believe we're going to be able to do this. And they're Christians, but yet in other areas, they, they don't believe much at all. And God will come through and come through and come through and come through and help them with it. So Satan's been dethroned. But he knows that he can do to us certain things if our faith is wobbly. If it's doubting, he can come in. Think about all the things in your life that have come into your life because of fear. The fear of Spiders. And what happens? Spiders come all over you. The fear of mice. When there's a, a mice epidemic, they end up at your house. The fear of being laid off. Every time someone gets laid off, it's you. It, it's, it, it's how Satan finds access. And, and God says that this goes on so that we would not be condemned with the world. The world is under condemnation. The world is falling apart. Their sins are producing all kinds of problems in their life. But God wants us to be free from that in our lives and walk in the blessings that God has for us so that we can be and do whatever God has called us to. One of my favorite verses found in Romans 8.1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And listen, if you're in Christ, you're not in Christ 
on Sunday, and on Monday you're out of Christ. You're not in Christ when you're in a good mood, and you're out of Christ when you're not. When you're in Christ, you're in Christ forever. Hallelujah. Gloomy days, happy days. You're in Christ. I think you ought to get a little bit more excited about that. Come on, come on. That, I just love that. And it will really move you. In. in fact, let me give you a verse. Isaiah 54, 17, it says this. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue that rises in judgment against you, you will condemn. For this is the heritage of the Lord. And then it says, their righteousness, now watch this, is of me. You know what that means? They're standing not on their own righteousness. I gave them my righteousness. That's why no weapon's going to form against their family. No weapon's going to prosper against their children. No weapon's going to prosper against, it won't prosper. Because it's my righteousness that I have imputed to them that the devil's trying to go against. You can't stop it. And everyone that loved him said amen and amen. All right, let me, let me wind this down. Look here, one more verse. Mark chapter 4, verse 24. Now, this verse, for years and years and years and years, I preached it this way, but it's incorrect. And a lot of preachers teach it this way. It's incorrect. They teach it. It's a verse that says, be careful what you listen to. So be careful what you listen to on the news. Be careful what you listen to in, on your TV set. And all that, there's some virtue to that, but that's not what this verse is saying. The context is talking about the Word of God. The parable of the sower has been taught before this. And he says this, Then he said to them, Take heed what you hear concerning the Word. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you, and to you who hear more will be given. Now watch the next part. For whoever has to him more will be given, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now what is he telling us? He's saying, all right, here's how it goes, guys. I want you to be very careful when you're listening to the word. Because to the degree that you use it will be the degree that it comes into your life. And if you don't use any of it, even what you have will be taken. Now, I don't think, I think that's eternal separation, to tell you the truth. But I want you to see what, what he's saying. The measure you use it, not just, well, I used it way back in 1958. No, I, the measure, I used it on Easter last year. For Christmas, I was a Christmas bunny. The usage, the usage determines how much effective it is in your life. You know, when I tell you to speak in faith, people go, all right, we'll, we'll speak in faith tonight. Woo, we got it. Did you know that Abram, before he had that miracle child at 100 years old, had to speak in faith for three months before the manifestation happened. Three months. 
Three months, he was calling himself something that no one in reality could see. Three months, I have no idea how long it took his wife to see a manifestation. I know that it had to be at the end of three months. So he did that for three months, repetition, 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 repetition. God's changed my name to Abraham, father of the multitude. I'm a father of the multitude. Well, you don't even have any grandkids, Abram. Don't call me Abram. My name is Abraham. Three months, going to the local store. Abram, how you doing? Don't call me Abram. My name's Abraham. Well, that means father of the multitude. You've been doing something I'm not aware of? You got a girlfriend on the side? I don't see anybody. Three months. Three months. Three months. See, people don't see that, and they give up too quick. I, for nine months, confessed healing over my body without any manifestation at all. Nine months. Dr. Cho, used to, who's with Jesus now, but he had a, a church in South Korea, which was a, a, over a million people, I think it was. And he had a, a lady come up to him with a, a, a disease that was terminal. And she got mad because he wouldn't do anything about it. And he realized he couldn't do anything without her having faith. And so she kept coming to the office, bugging him and bugging him and bugging him and bugging him and bugging him. And finally, obviously, the Lord gave him some wisdom. He says, I want you to go up on prayer mountain, and I want you to start to pray, and I want you to write down these healing verses. I forget how many times it was. It was like a 1,000 times. I want you to go up there, and I want you to write those verses down and say those verses, and don't come down off the mountain until you complete this. And somewhere in between the 1,000, she comes screaming down off the mountain, and she got touched. She got healed. Well, I went to church on Sunday, and God didn't do nothing. Well, you just need to keep in church and keep in church and keep in church and keep believing and keep believing, keep believing and keep believing, and bam, your miracle is going to come. You, you, there's got to be a repetition to this. It's like praise. Connie, you can relate to this. You're a song leader, right? Music isn't any good singing it once. You got to sing it more than once. You got to sing it until you got it memorized. Amen. And it bubbles up out of your heart and... And you sing it, and, and, and even then, it, you know, you do it two or three times. Still not enough if you're in a bad mood and you got, but you just say, no, nah, I'm going to just sacrifice a praise and worship God. And, and you keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And then the manifestation of the Spirit comes. And you get refreshed, but it isn't because you were in church one time. It's continuously. And with that in mind, let me just mention this because it's true. I'm charismatic. I came out of the Word of Faith movement, and I'm probably as Pentecostal as you can get, I guess. But on the other hand, I study all kinds of stuff. I study the Baptists, all of them. And one of the mistakes that charismatic Christians make is 
they say, if you want to get filled with the Spirit, it only comes by praying in tongues. It doesn't just come by that. It doesn't. It's one of the ways I get filled with the Spirit all the time, but that's not the only way that it, that it fills you. It fills you just by singing a song unto the Lord. Speaking to you, it says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns. It doesn't say a thing about praying in tongues in that verse. Even though we know they were filled with the Spirit at Pentecost, you understand, and it isn't limited to that. It also, you can get filled with the Spirit just by praying intensely. You find in Acts that they were being persecuted, and they prayed for boldness. And as the Spirit of God fell on them, after they prayed for boldness, they were filled with the Spirit, and they went out speaking the Word of God in boldness. Don't limit what God wants to do in your life. Don't let any movement limit you. God has more than one way to get you moving in the right direction. So where was I? We were praising God, weren't we? That's so good. But I want you to see that because I believe sometimes we we just don't use the faith enough. We don't pray long enough. We don't stay positive long enough. We don't give long enough. We cut short. Because if you're going to recover from your mess, you're going to have to do that. Let me close with this. This is a true story. It was about a tennis player. And it shows you the power of doing things the right way. In fact, uh, we had a piano player years ago, and she would give lessons. And you, know, you remember the expression that we'd say, uh, practice makes perfect? And one time I preached that. I said, practice makes perfect. And afterwards she said, Pastor, I need to correct you. I said, I said what's up? She said, practice does not make perfect if you're practicing wrong. And I said, boy, you know, you're absolutely right. If you don't practice the right way, all you do is spend a lot of time working out the same way. There's a right way to work out. There's a wrong way to work out. And well, anyway, this particular tennis player, he was coming in fourth, third place in these tournaments, professional tennis player. And so he hired this renowned coach or trainer. And the trainer watched his game. He says, well, here's what's wrong. You learned the basics wrong. And I can get you to first place. But you're going to have to start at the bottom to get there. And so he said, all right, I want to go first place. So he relearned the basics of tennis. I have no idea what that is. So don't look at me like I know how to play tennis. All I need to do, all I know how to do is knock it over the fence. And so he relearned that, but because it, it was brand new to him, he went to another tournament and came in fifth place. But then he kept practicing the right way, came in fifth, he practiced again, came in fourth, he practicing, came in third, and this is the place he never got past. And he kept practicing the way he told him, and he ends up second. And he keeps at it, and he ended up first place. But he had to learn 
to do it the right way to get to it. And that's why teaching is so important. You learn the right way to respond, the right way to love your wife, the right way to love your husband, the right way to walk by faith. And if you do all that, you should be excited and you should be some progress. And maybe you're in the bottom right now, but you're going to get all the way up to number one. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Stand up with me, everybody. Isn't God good? You know what I love about the Lord is that he just, he just unbelievable. He never gives up on us. We give up. I was talking to a brother that was, talking, that was struggling with forgiveness. I said, the hardest part that you have isn't forgiving your brother. It's forgiving yourself. Amen. That's the hardest part. The brother part's pretty easy, but the other parts, that's the hard part. Father, I pray tonight. I thank you for your people, Lord. I thank you they're precious in your eyes. I thank you they have the ability to move mountains. They have the ability to get through their struggles. And Lord, I thank you that tonight we're going to make a commitment, Lord, to do it the right way and to do it over and over again. Maybe we've tried to overcome gossip, but we weren't quick to hear and slow to speak. We're going to make those improvements tonight, Lord. We're going to commit to doing it right, even though it may feel funny. I've never done it that way before. We're going to do it the right way. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. For more messages like this one, check out our podcast, River App, and our website at theriver.org.